The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Welcome to Squawk Box. It's Christmas Eve and here are your headlines. A stocking stuffer for investors, the Dow jumps nearly 100 points to another record high, with Wall Street poised to ride a Santa rally into Christmas. Boeing House CEO Dennis Muhlenberg, a week after halting production of its troubled 737 MAX jet, with board member David Calhoun set to take the top job in January. A lump of coal for BMW this year as the German car maker confirms it's under investigation by the Securities and Exchange Commission, reportedly over its U.S. sales reporting. And Russian defiance on Nord Stream 2. Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev vows the gas pipeline will be done in a couple of months, saying there's nothing catastrophic about U.S. sanctions on the project. Out this morning with a top corporate story that has also impacted the fortunes of the Dow this year. Boeing, the company has replaced its CEO, ousting Dennis Muhlenberg, after he failed to contain the crisis at the plane maker. The veteran chief was last week forced to halt production of the 737 MAX airplanes. The company struggled to meet safety standards despite grounding the fleet for nine months following two tragic crashes. The aerospace giant said a leadership change was necessary to restore confidence as it appointed board member David Calhoun as the new CEO. Calhoun, who spent much of his career at GE, will begin the role on the 13th of January. Andrew Ross Sorkin sat down with Dennis Muhlenberg back in November and asked him about the pressure to step down. Has there ever been a day where you're sitting around going, you know what, this is not working, it's not working, i got to get out of here. I, I, it's better for the company for me to leave. Andrew, I think it's fair to say I've, I've thought about it. But to be frank, um, that's not what's in my character. I, I don't see um, running away from a challenge, resigning as, as the right solution. Meanwhile, David Calhoun offered Muhlenberg the board's support over the MAX 737 failures in an interview with CNBC last month. From the vantage point of our board, Dennis has done everything right. Um, from the beginning, from the beginning, remember Dennis didn't, didn't create this problem, but from the beginning, um, he knew that MCAS should and could be done better. And he has led a program to rewrite MCAS to alleviate all of those conditions that uh, ultimately uh, beset two unfortunate crews and the families and victims. Bart Calhoun added that the embattled chief executive would have to deliver an operational 737 MAX fleet to successfully navigate this period. He is going to experience in his first uh, uh, period one of the most difficult situations any CEO that I've ever known has lived through. Um, so if he can get us from here to the end point, and the end point being a, a, a MAX that's flying in service and accepted by the flying public, 
and, and begins to restore our brand, I might argue he's just about the most qualified executive in the world to be running a company like Boeing. Boeing's new chief will inherit an array of challenges in what's set to be a critical year for the plane maker. CNBC's Phil LeBeau looks at how the aerospace giant aims to bounce back and regain the trust of airlines, travelers, and regulators. Next year, Boeing 737 MAX will have three critical moments. First, expect recertification early in 2020. The head of the FAA, Steve Dixon, has said he won't approve the MAX until he flies it himself. And there are still a number of hurdles to clear before the MAX takes off. But most believe it will be recertified in the first couple of months of next year. Once that happens, expect airlines to make a big push to convince flyers the MAX is safe. Southwest, American, and United have parked their MAX planes for almost a year. They know passengers may hesitate or flat-out refuse to board a MAX. So executives of those airlines will be on MAX flights to reassure their customers the planes are good to go. Once the MAX is back, look for Boeing to slowly ramp up production. Yes, the assembly line will be down at the start of the year, but Boeing will likely go to building 42 a month by mid-year. What about the MAX airplanes that have been built but not yet delivered? They will eventually take off and go to the airlines that have ordered them. But it will take all of 2020 and beyond for Boeing to clear out the inventory of more than 400 MAX airplanes. We've spent uh, different pockets over this year talking about Boeing and debating uh, the fortunes of the company. And uh, all along, the big question is, why didn't Muhlenberg go earlier? Mm. There's got to be a sense of accountability after two fatal air crashes that somebody was responsible. And you think in, in many ways it does go right to the top. Uh, the other big point is that things were not improving in recent weeks. This culture of trying to rush an aircraft back out there onto the tarmac to try and hit certain targets. I mean, that was seen as one of the, mm. the key catalysts uh, and one of the, the key elements responsible for at least one of the aircraft uh, falling out of the sky. And effectively, if you look at what's happened now, the big rush trying to get the airline back in the sky again. So back to the point, culture was an issue. And is any of this going to be addressed with a change of CEO? Well, to your point about uh, the need for leadership to be held accountable, as we heard there in the tape with Andrew Sorkin, Muhlenberg really tried to emphasize that he was taking responsibility for the fatal crashes and under his leadership trying to uh, right those wrongs. But I think the question now for investors is whether his departure and Calhoun's leadership will change Boeing's relationship with the FAA, if this is a turning point in their relationship relationship with the regulators because, of course, that's the first hurdle in getting these aircrafts back in the sky. But I think also for bulls on Boeing, the events of the last 10 days or, show, or so have shown that the challenges have run deeper than even they expected. Yeah, just with Calhoun, uh, the new CEO who comes in in January, is he uh, enough of a change? I mean, it's already been mooted that uh, none of the victims want to see more resignations from the board, mm. not uh, more senior appointments from the board. And effectively, this is how they have tapped what they see as the right success. And I can understand the different factors at play here where it was a crisis situation. They're trying to find someone qualified enough to lead such an international business at such a, a rough time for the aircraft maker. Yet, is he the right person when he's been at the company since 2009? So effectively, part of many of the decisions that are taken in place, including these two fatal crashes. So uh, is it enough of an outsider? When I don't think it is at this point to satisfy some of those concerns 
also when it comes to cultural change, is it better to have an outsider who can come into the business with fresh eyes? Those would be my chief concerns. When it comes to the FAA, I think we've seen a very strong arm recently where the regulator wants to distance itself from Boeing to uh, look as though it is like it's tough tough enough when uh, there are question marks about the decisions it made in the past. Well, to that point, uh, perhaps a leadership change, we've seen this in the past, is enough to trigger a change intact from the regulator uh, that, you know, they, they are now dealing with somewhat of a cleaner slate, even though, to your point, this is not a, a true outsider when we look at Calhoun taking the helm. Yeah. The big question here is whether the aircraft does finally get certified. I mean, that's also a fairly significant assumption, isn't it? I mean, we assume it will because uh, mm. that's what's happened in the past. You uh, continue to bring on the upgrade and continue to, to move through the checklist the regulators have. But this is such an integral part of the production line for Boeing. Just axing this aircraft and axing the fleet would seem untenable and not a decision they would make at this point. But uh, 2020, watch this space. Watch the space, yeah. And even looking back at 2019, just to broaden the conversation out beyond Boeing, of course, this leadership change, a very important event for markets, but we've seen a raft of changes at the top of companies across Europe and the U.S. in 2019. Uh, you know, we can venture to find commonality among all of those. One thing I would bear, I would, I would flag is that the rise of activist shareholder, uh, shareholder uh, activism uh, has made it so companies don't have a lot of wiggle room when it comes to addressing challenges uh, quite quickly. Yes, I just also I point out that Boeing, of course, a very large cap stock and a component of the Dow, slight underperformance in the Dow versus what you saw in the S&P and the Nasdaq and some of that, uh, no doubt, down to, to Boeing's fortunes. I want to bring in Geoffrey Yu, head of UK investment office, UBS Wealth Management, is in the studio with us this morning. Good morning to you, Geoffrey. Morning, morning. Mm -hmm. A fairly stunning yeah. reaction we've seen on markets across the year, mm -hmm. the overall performance very, very strong. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair comment that uh, it might have been the fortunes of Boeing mm -hmm. that had a little bit of an impact around the edges on, on the Dow? Uh, well, I think if you look at the sentiment, you know, yesterday, no, two or three things, and really, um, one, um, the uh, further um, um, advancement, should we say, you know, China's announcement of tariffs, um, uh, you know, coming off, is that part of the broader picture? Uh, and, uh, going back to Juliana's points about, you know, corporate governance, I think, you know, this year, one thing that we've been trying to do within the ESG space, you know, for example, is, um, uh, and trying to tell clients on how this works, is you know, engage, you know, be, become a bit more activist, and whereby if clients, you know, they engage in a certain company, you know, to um, ask them to uh, um, you know, think about ESG issues, and I think governance actually plays an important part in terms of how leadership of companies actually works. Uh, and uh, that uh, will be additive you know, to companies' um, you know, uh, evaluations you know, over time. And that's an important component. If we're seeing more of that, I think it will help stock performance you know, over time as well. And I think just you know, broadly uh, the sense that are we turning the corner in the industrial space and the cyclical space? That's important too. Does culture yep. come into the mix when it uh, is uh, an ESG conversation mm -hmm. as investors rake over and the environmental, social, governance elements uh, of a company strategy? It's pretty hard to try and assess culture from the outside, isn't it? It, it, it really is. And I think it's a two-way conversation, right? So um, I don't think anyone um, you know, in the space you know, can claim to be the experts. You know, different companies are expected to have their own individual cultures. Um, but I think uh, a, a general societal shift you know, towards um, not exactly you know, conforming to a certain ESG cri uh, criteria, but becoming more aware of that and realising, and, and we are uh, doing that too, um, that the next generation of clients, next generation of investors, they, they actually expect higher standards. I think that broader cultural shift, you now people are signing on towards.
towards them, but we can encourage you know, just further advancements on that. Uh, Jeffrey, thank you yeah. very much. We've started our Christmas Eve with a very serious conversation, yeah. so we'll, we'll try and become a little bit more festive <laughs> over the course of the show. Juliana. <laughs> well, we, I've got some festive colors for you, at least. I uh, feel very fortunate that the markets were green yesterday, so we can present this nice red-green color palette for you. Well, let's take a look at the performance we saw on Wall Street yesterday. As Karen mentioned there, Boeing was a huge uh, driver of the moves we saw in the Dow, which gained about 96 points yesterday. Boeing contributed 65 points uh, of that rise, and that came on the back of this announcement that Muhlenberg would be stepping down. As we were just discussing, it felt inevitable that he would step down, but the timing uh, certainly caught some investors by surprise. Beyond Boeing and the Dow, the S&P 500 also uh, inch higher yesterday, reaching 32.24, and the NASDAQ at 89.45. We are now officially entering the Santa Claus rally period, which lasts for the last five trading days of the year and the first two of the new year. So we're uh, setting up uh, with some positive momentum as we head into that phase. And just as a reminder, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ are both on pace for the best yearly performance since 2013. So quite a strong run for U.S. stocks over the course of 2019. Of course, this comes on the back of a very dismal end to 2018. Let's take a look at Asian markets, what the overnight session uh, looks like. A little bit more of a mixed picture than where we stood yesterday. Uh, Shanghai Composite and the Shenzhen bouncing back this morning. The Shanghai is up about uh, two-thirds of a percent. The Shenzhen up or over 1.3 percent. So some green coming onto the board after yesterday's losses there. The Hang Seng, on the other hand, trading a touch below the flat line at 27,864. Nikkei 225 over in Japan, essentially flat on the session. Let's take a look at European opening calls. Yesterday was uh, effectively a flat day for the stock 600 amid low volatility and low volume as a lot of investors and traders already in no doubt headed out for the holiday period. This morning, we're looking again at a muted start to trade here in Europe. No major movers on the board. The slight underperformer as of now looks as, it's going, looks as if it's going to be the FTSE MIB over in Italy. Karen. And Juliana, thank you. Coming up on the show, Russia gives sanctions the cold shoulder, saying U.S. action against Nord Stream 2 won't hurt the project. And just a reminder, we are podcasting. Head to CNBC.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from and download and listen to today's episode. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, the Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. The Russian government has called the new U.S. sanctions against Nord Stream 2, quote, nothing catastrophic. Prime Minister Dmitry Medvedev says the gas pipeline will be completed in a couple of months, despite Washington's move to hinder the project. His comments come after the Kremlin vowed to retaliate against the U.S. in the wake of President Trump's imposing sanctions on individuals and companies involved with the vessels laying the pipeline from Russia to Germany. 
Leaders of China, Japan and South Korea met this morning amid growing tensions on the Korean peninsula as well as the trade war front. The three Asian powers agreed to promote dialogue to reach desired solutions on both topics and to foster dialogue between North Korea and the United States. Repeated missile testing by Pyongyang has angered its largest trading partner in Beijing, along with uh, igniting major concerns across the Pacific. South Korean President Moon Jae-in said the countries were committed to achieving denuclearization in the region. India's ruling party has been dealt a blow this morning after losing control of the eastern state of Jharkhand. It comes amid nationwide protests against a controversial new citizenship law. Protesters say it discriminates against Muslims. More than 20 people have died in the clashes that erupted nearly two weeks ago. Parikshit Luthra is a reporter from CNBC TV 18. Uh, now more than 20 people have died in the clashes. Uh, what can you tell us about the latest? Well, uh, the elections in the state of Jharkhand are extremely important in this context. They're taking place uh, just about two weeks after the citizenship law. The new citizenship law was passed by the Indian parliament. And the opposition is saying this is actually a referendum of the people on the new citizenship law, that the people have rejected uh, this kind of politics and this legislation, which excludes uh, Muslim refugees from Pakistan, Afghanistan and Bangladesh. Uh, the government has been saying that uh, this, this law does not have any religious color. It was passed by the unanimous will of the parliament and it will not impact Muslims in India in any way. This is only for refugees from Pakistan, Afghanistan and Bangladesh. Having said that, protests continue. Even last night, we saw a large number of students protesting in the national capital. Uh, 139 students were also detained while protesting in different parts of Delhi. Uh, uh, and they were released later on as well. Uh, there is also a clamor among opposition parties to reject this new citizenship law and maybe not implement it at, uh, in their own states. So while uh, the government may, uh, may, may, may try and implement it nationally, the local governments may not implement it on their own. Uh, we're also hearing that uh, the government could now approve uh, an expensive national population register exercise, which would be an exercise to, uh, to survey and document the biometrics and demographics of the entire population of the country. This would be done between April and September uh, next year. This was an exercise that was done in 2011, but this time it assumes a lot of importance because the opposition is saying this is linked to a nationwide exercise to identify refugees in the country and deport them. And many opposition parties are raising questions about this exercise as well. So the Modi government continues to face a lot of pressure after this defeat in Jharkhand. Uh, it's, it's quite clear that the government would like to go back to the drawing board and probably reach out to the electorate in different parts of the country. There are more state elections coming up in the next couple of weeks and they would like to tell voters that this law does not harm anyone. It does not try and divide people on religious lines. Harikshit, thank you very much for keeping us up to date with the latest over in India. Uh, let's take a look now at where we stood in Asian markets uh, at the end of or at where we stand as we head into the final trading days of the decade. Let's kick off with the Shanghai Composite, the mainland Chinese index. As you can see here, we did see massive gains in the Shanghai Composite in the run up to 2015, but it has come down since then. And actually, over the 10 year period, it is actually down nearly 10 percent. So 
So in stark contrast to the gains we saw in the U.S. yesterday, we were running through the S&P 500, the Dow, the Nasdaq, which are all up, give or take, around the 200% mark over this 10-year period. But the Shanghai Composite, a very, very different picture. And of course, moving forward, China and the Chinese authorities are trying to open up the markets there to more investment. But as it stands, Shanghai Composite, a strong underperformer over the last decade. A little bit of a more, a little bit of a brighter picture for the Shenzhen index. You can see here following a similar trajectory, but still in positive territory over the 10 years, up about 38%. So nowhere near the gains we've seen stateside, but a better performer than the Shanghai Composite. Over in Japan, let's take a look at the Nikkei 225. This decade has been a much stronger one for the Japanese benchmark. That index is up about 125%. So basically matching the gains we've seen in the DAX here in Europe, the DAX outperforming broader European markets over the decade, but again, falling short of those gains that we've seen accumulate in the U.S. Karen. Well, Juliana, a few stories moved the markets in 2019, like the U.S.-China trade war. The two parties have now finalized the long-awaited phase one deal, but a full resolution is a long way off. Here's what to expect from the trade war in 2020. The Trump administration rocked the trade boat in 2019 with unpredictable tariffs and short-lived truces. In 2020, international trade will move back toward the status quo. First, China tensions return to a simmer. Fireworks will fade when the U.S. and China sign off on a phase one deal in early January. A second deal will remain far off, but if China engages on and enforces this first deal, expect tariffs to be rolled back slowly. Second, farm finances will be in focus. As planting season gets underway, American farmers will size up the pain of a two-year trade war and the salve of new business with China, Mexico, Canada and Japan. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue says more financial aid will be warranted if the ag economy doesn't rebound quickly. Third, Europe will be back in the crosshairs. As President Trump eyes re-election, he'll home in on a new target, the EU. With rising tariffs on luxury goods, the president's stump speeches will be testing ground for new material on auto tariffs and energy sanctions. But he'll pocket those fights until after November. Well, it's been an eventful year. Jeffrey Yu, head of UK investment office at UBS Wealth Management, uh, staying with us. And you've also lived through this roller coaster of a, a phase one trade deal that uh, is apparently just uh, a whisker away from us, about to be signed in January. Does that mean we are now clear of some of the risks around trade? Um, I think we've, um, we can price out for the short term some of the downside risks. Um, but as this, um, you know, sunny uplands and start to price in upside risks and global reflation, I think uh, that's I'm asking a bit too much of. Is a interesting the uh, shot that you just had there with the trilateral summit and um, apparently Xi Jinping's playing peacemaker between Japan and South Korea, you know, right now in their own trade of dispute, of course, you know, there are separate reasons behind it. But I think the one cost um, throughout this year and the last 18 months has been trade, you know, tariffs as a weapon in statecraft that has been normalized. Um, so it's not just US and China, Japan, South Korea, um, you know, any countries you know, with a close trading relationship, you know, they can you know, just throw tariffs at each other over some you know, innocuous dispute or anything. So globalization and trade sense certainly has peaked. It's not going to unwind any I just want to get into that a little bit more because yeah. around the protests that we saw in France, so one of the comments was that the French have just simply gotten used to protesting now. They were getting used to going out there on the streets every other weekend and uh, carrying the placards and um, shouting at authorities and anyone who would listen. Same thing when it comes to tariffs. So we're now getting into this world where people are used to world leaders 
leaders taking us down the path of tariffs. And the United States, whether it now swings to, say, European markets, another trading partner in 2020, and whether it also catches on, where you see the, the ultimate use of tariffs by other nations in retaliation. This is going to get worse before it gets, you know, any better. I know we're in a single market in the EU, you know, for another month or so. Um, but uh, uh, who's to say, you know, EU countries, you know, won't, you know, just for the sake of it, you know, be it some border dispute or anything else, you know, start to, you know, throw um, restrictions on each other, clearly illegal under single market rules. Um, but, but for the sake of domestic populism or political popularity, I, I see it as perfectly possible. So that is a broader trend over the next decade of deglobalization. And it also means, you know, switching around supply chains and countries or individual blocks, you know, they start to look for, um, for economic um, independence. There's a cost to all this. It's not cost-free. So productivity is going to come off um, and, and, and the cost of doing business is going to go up. And that ties into the broader point over the next decade or beyond. It's not just about trade divergence, supply chain divergence, you know, tech divergence, standards divergence, you know, decoupling. You know, these are going to be catchphrases um, that we're going to be talking about for a long time. In the trade war, of course, a key topic for China and yep. the Chinese investor, the Chinese yep. government. But ultimately, the priority for the Chinese government is stability, I think, yes. in the region. Mm -hmm. yeah. And over the last several months with the protests in Hong Kong, yeah. this is perhaps yeah. over, you know, in recent times, the, the, the key, you know, what's actually jeopardized stability more than anything else. So as we look to 2020, you know, how central is Hong Kong going to be to the China story? And how do you see this res getting resolved? So I think, you know, Beijing's, you know, made its views, you know, clear on, um, you know, Hong Kong and, um, uh, and the like. And you go, go back to the word you know, uh, stability. Apparently, the uh, final communique in the Central Economic word, uh, Work Conference mentioned stability 29 times. Mm. That's a lot. So that pertains to economic stability and other forms of stability. But I think the government realizes, you know, delivering growth, you know, rising you know, standards, achieving a moderately um, rich economy, you know, that's their phrase, uh, that, you know, for the whole country, you know, just um, boosting the incomes of its individuals, you know, getting jobs delivered. So the MPC in March, you know, that really is going to be crucial. Um, you know, people often ask about China's growth numbers, what matters? Well, that, what, what matters is a number that can deliver, you know, 20 million jobs a year mm. um, for and the government. And it's not just jobs per se, but good quality jobs with uh, decent income growth. That matters. And again, not just in China, but globally when you see some of the tensions in society. Mm. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Cho. Weekdays on CNBC.